Well, it is, it is good to be back preaching this morning. I've obviously been here the last couple of weeks, but to be back in this role, I think uh, maybe some of Tim's kind words, or he doesn't have to have quite as crazy of a week now since I'm preaching again. <laughs> maybe a little bit, but I so appreciate him filling in those couple of weeks and the benefit that was to me. Um, so during our worship services uh, this summer, we're going to be studying selected psalms. Um, for me personally, psalms has not always been a book that I've gravitated towards um, in my walk with Christ. doesn't mean I don't like the psalms or anything like that. I, I, I just maybe haven't always found myself as quick to, to reach for the Psalms over the years. I, my left brain personality has been drawn more to theological discussions in Paul's letters or the historical portions of the Old and New Testaments. Um, and, and so poetry in general, much less Hebrew poetry specifically that Psalms would be, uh, poetry is not something I, I am finding myself always naturally drawn towards or particularly gifted in creating, if I'm honest. I mean, I can rhyme some words and try and make a poem that way. Um, I can usually come up with a good pun, which don't let anyone convince you that that's a form of poetry. It's very shallow. <laughs> in light of Father's Day, maybe it's, you know, dad poetry, if we want to call it that, but... Um, but I, man, I, I think that's a little bit of a form of poetry. But, uh, but, in, but in spite of my natural tendencies uh, in that area, I, I, I trust God's divine purposes in including poetry in his divinely written word to us. And so it's important that I, that, that we, take time to study the Hebrew poetry that, that is found in Psalms and, and allow God to speak to us through it in a way that might be different from, from the other types of literature in the Bible. Um, I, I, I know I've just been, I've been reminded of the importance of, of studying the Psalms, both as the result of the, the Sunday school class that we did on the Psalms this past spring, um, uh, as well as the, the recent tragedy in our family. Uh, the Psalms have, have indeed been, been close to my heart and at, at the front of my mind in recent weeks and months. Um, so we're going to spend the summer uh, looking at different Psalms. And, and in order to launch us into this sermon series, I wanted to give just some introductory comments about the Psalms in general before we move into our specific psalm for today, Psalm 8. So when it comes to the book of Psalms as a whole, there, there's, been, there's been so much scholarly work done in recent decades and centuries that has reinforced the belief that Psalms, the book of Psalms, is not simply a hymnal of 150 random disorganized songs, or it's, it's not a book of 150 disconnected poems. Um, quite the opposite, in fact. There are, there are themes that are developed. There's terms and phrases which tie psalms together. There's even groupings of authors and groupings of topics of psalms that, that convey purpose and intent. And so, so we, we, we need to, I think, view psalms as a cohesive book, 
as psalms that are put in order on purpose, not just randomly thrown in there. And, and I think as we do that, one of the major benefits is, is we, we note how the psalms communicate the grand story of redemption on, on so many different levels. Um, for example, King, King David is credited with authoring the largest number of psalms. And even beyond that, some would say that every psalm is either, either written by David or about David or it's in view of King David. There's people that would argue that. Um, but, but the psalms aren't just poems or songs that are focused solely on David's context or his life. They, they, they look back before David. They reflect back on the history of Israel. They reflect back on the history of creation, like we will see this morning in Psalm 8. Um, they, they look back at what has already taken place in order to connect it with what was taking place in the life of David and the nation of Israel at that time. And in, in addition to that, and maybe even more importantly, the Psalms look ahead to what would take place as the result of the coming of the Messiah. So, so when we read the Psalms, we kind of have to have this wide-angle lens where we're thinking about David, but we're also thinking before David, and we're also thinking after David. And then along those lines as well, it's important to have a wide-angle lens regarding who's speaking the Psalms and who they are spoken to. So in the simplest sense, many of the Psalms are from the voice of David, spoken to God, or they're intended, David wrote them for the people of God to speak to God. In the simplest sense, that's what the Psalms are. But there's more to it than that, even. The Psalms don't originate solely from humans, from David, for example. They're divinely inspired words spoken through humans. So in a sense, in a sense, these are God's words to David and to God's people to speak back to him. It's almost as if God is saying, if you want to you have a conversation with me, here's what you can say. Here's the words. I gave them to David. The authors can speak them back to me. Uh, and I think that becomes especially important uh, to remember when we look at Psalms of Lament, which, which can, can, can contain some difficult images. Um, I think it's important to remember when pleas are made to defeat an enemy, uh, sometimes using graphic images. Um, these are words from God given to mankind to speak back to God. And then, in addition to that, Jesus himself utilized the Psalms as if they were his own words spoken to God the Father. Uh, Psalm 22 is a classic example of that. Um, King David was speaking about suffering in his own life, but under divine inspiration from God, he was doing so in a way which foreshadowed Jesus the Messiah, who came in the line of David. So David's speaking about himself, which is true, but he's ultimately speaking about Jesus, which is also true. So there's, there's levels to, psalm, to the Psalms, as we're going to see as we go through this series. It's important to keep all those different voices in mind as we're reading the Psalms. 
And, and just one other quick note about Hebrew poetry in general. Um, there's some common poetic devices to watch out for that, that help us to understand the meaning of the different psalms. Uh, in English, a common poetic device is rhyming, right? There's rhyming, there's rhythm. Um, one of the, well, the most common one in, uh, in psalms is called synonymous parallelism. Synonymous parallelism. That, that is simply two or more lines working together to make one point. Two lines working together to make one point. And it's usually easy to spot in our English Bibles because it, it consists of a line with a semicolon at the end, and it's followed by another line that's usually indented just a little bit. So, so for example, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm chapter 5. I just kind of opened to the first page of the Psalms in my Bible and thought I'll just pick one of these and use it as an example. So Psalm chapter 5, uh, verse 4. This is an example of synonymous parallelism. It says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So, so what we see in that statement, it, it, there's a statement made in the first line, God does not delight in wickedness. And then uh, another line supports or even expands that first line, evil may not dwell with you. And so th the important thing to keep in mind is that the two lines are working together to make one point. So when we see synonymous parallelism, we should not ever pit the two lines against one another in any way. If we hear those two lines as making two different points, we've missed it because they're working together to make one point. One's not going to refute the other. Even, even there, there's, there's something called antithetical parallelism, where the two lines are saying opposite things, but they're still making one point. That's a, that's a common feature in Hebrew poetry. Multiple lines making one point. So it's usually two, sometimes it's three, sometimes it's four lines. But we'll see that as we go throughout our, our study of the Psalms. That, that is a hallmark of Hebrew poetry. And we see it all over the Psalms. So, so that's, that's one kind of poetic device. Um, I'll, I'll point out some others as we go throughout our series, but, uh, but that's enough to get us started this morning. I didn't want to spend the entire morning just talking about the mechanics of Hebrew poetry. I, I want to have some time to actually get into a psalm today. So, so Psalm chapter 8 is where we're going to focus our time. And I would encourage you to, to turn there with me. I'm just going to read all the way through Psalm 8, and then we'll go back and we'll talk about it together. So Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, the, sun, uh, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas." 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, the first thing that might jump out at us is that the first and last lines are identical, right? Probably noticed that. Um, if a statement is important enough to start the psalm and end the psalm with, then we probably ought to take special notice of that. Um, I don't think we have to be Hebrew scholars to, to pick that up in Hebrew poetry. Um, so it, the key theme of Psalm chapter 8 is the praise that is due to God. His name is majestic, and it ought to be praised in all the earth. Now, I said earlier, um, individual psalms are often connected to, to the ones that, that are around it. If you were to look at Psalms 3 through 7, what you see is that the, the major theme of Psalm 3 through 7 is that David is speaking about those who oppose him. And he's especially uh, in... Uh, Psalm 3, talking about his son Absalom. Um, and if you know the story from Second Samuel, Absalom rebelled against his father. Uh, he won over the hearts of many in Israel, and he sought to kill his father in order to, to take over as king. Um, and, and Psalm 3 specifically references that event, and I think Psalm 4, 5, 6, and 7 are, are spoken in light of that event as well. The Psalms all contain pleas to God to answer in the midst of attack, provide refuge and deliverance, uh, and defeat the enemy of God's chosen one. And then Psalm 7 ends with this statement. David says in uh, 7.17, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. So I think in the midst of the danger and the oppression, David wondering if and how God would answer, he's led to sing praise, to sing praise to God. And I think Psalm 8 is the psalm of praise that he sang. Where does he go to find something to praise God for in the midst of the chaos surrounding him? in the midst of his son rebelling against him and leading a rebellion and seeking to take his life, where does God go? Where does, uh, where does David go to praise God? On Psalm 8, he goes back to the very beginning. He goes to the very beginning. Uh, the, this psalm is a recollection of God's creative events in Genesis 1 and 2. Heavens are the work of God's hands. God set the moon and stars in place. God made mankind. Uh, all the creatures of the earth are the works of his hands. So, again, verse 1 and, and verse 9, why is God's name majestic in all the earth? Why is his glory above the heavens? Well, it's because he created it all. He created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens over which his glory sits and, and the earth in which his name is majestic. God created it. I, I, I think this is perhaps the foundational reason to praise God. We can always go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and praise the Creator. When the world is swirling and crashing down around us and, and our, our heads are, are spinning at the events that have transpired, um, when God's ways and purposes confuse us, we can always go back to creation and find a reason to praise God. 
And I think that's what David's doing here. And, and, and one of the ways to go back to creation is to go to the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, where, where we can read about God's creative works out of nothing. Um, we can take note of his, his purposeful and, and ordered work. Um, we can listen to his proclamation that it is good. Um, uh, upon reading and, and studying and reflecting upon God's creative work in Genesis, it, it, it should lead us to praise him. And that's what David's doing here. I think he's got Genesis 1 and 2 in mind. But I don't think that's the only thing that he's doing. I think he's thinking about Genesis 1 and 2, but I think he's also looking at creation itself. I think that's another way to go back to the creation event, is to get out into creation. And if you think about it, so much of our modern lives we're surrounded by things that we've created and that things, things that we've built. Um, it's probable that over the past year, you and I, at some point, maybe multiple times, went an entire day without setting foot on a surface that wasn't manufactured in some way by humans. Right? I mean, if you think about it, especially in the winter, right? Maybe in the summer we're out a bit more doing things, but in the winter, have we gone a whole day and we never put our foot on anything that wasn't manufactured? Yeah, I, I think just, just because of the day and age in which we live, we need time in our schedules to look at God's heavens as David did and ponder the work of God's fingers. And I think when we do that, we're, we're naturally drawn to praise him like David's doing here. Um, now, now, all the difficult things in our lives don't just go away when we do that. We know that. But when we look at God's creation, our focus is taken off of ourselves, and it's placed back upon God as we marvel at, at his work. Um, and so at times when we, when we might struggle to, to proclaim the majestic name of God, like verse 1 and verse 9 talks about, Maybe sometimes we can listen to creation and hear creation singing loud and clear about God's majestic work and what he has done. And so I, I just thought, you know, maybe there's a good challenge in there for us. I, I would challenge all of us over the next couple of weeks, some, sometime between now and the end of the month, find a way to go back to the creation event by by observing creation, getting out in creation, and just marveling at God's handiwork. Um, and, and you can figure out the details. If you want to do it alone as a family, uh, with a friend, you know, go for a walk, look at the stars, visit the zoo, look at something under a microscope. There, there's so many different ways that it can be done. Details are up to you, but, but take time at some point over the next couple weeks and Focus upon the work of God's fingers. Listen to creation, praising God's majestic name. And, and, and as you do that, join in and verbally praise him. If you want to sing, that's fine. Sing. If you just want to speak his praises, do that. But join in with what creation is doing and praise God. And, you know, I, I, have, I have faith that as we take time to do that, we're going to be drawn into praising our transcendent God. That it, it just comes naturally as we marvel at his work. 
But it won't, I think what we're going to find is it won't just be us praising his transcendence, his, his grandness and his power. I think we'll also be drawn into considering the imminence of God, his, his care for, his presence with the creation that he has made. And that, that's what David naturally did. So, so after looking at God's heaven, the work of his fingers, I mean, listen to where his thoughts go in verse 4. Well, I'll just read verse 3 and 4. So when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? So I think, man, maybe David's out, he's counting the stars in Orion's belt, and he's wondering, oh, I wonder how far away those things are. And, and he wonders why in the world God would even blink an eye at his own issues. What's man that you even care about him? Son of man, that you're, that you're mindful of him. Why, why, why would God, why would the God who created the entire cosmos and currently sustains the cosmos care about little old David? And we can put our names in there, can't we? I mean, what, what's the son of man that you care for him? And, and a, a quick textual note here, that, that phrase, son of man, is thick with meaning. That, that, that is a biblical phrase, the son of man. And I think the tendency can be to, to jump ahead and connect that phrase with Jesus, the Messiah. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but before we do that, we have to remember how synonymous parallelism works in Hebrew poetry. Remember that the second line supports and expands upon the point being made in the first line. So the phrase son of man in the second line is continuing the thought about mankind from the first line. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. It's all making one point there. So David's intention is to, <clears throat> is to contemplate why the majestic God would have any care and concern for humans. That's what he wonders. And the answer to that question, I think, is in verses 5 through 8. Humans aren't just some other inconsequential part of creation. It's quite the opposite. I mean, we, we know from the account of creation, from Genesis 1, that humans are made in the image of God. We, we, we possess something that, that no other part of creation does. Uh, as much as, God's, as, as God is reflected in mountains and stars and fish, Nothing holds a candle to God's reflection in humanity based on his image stamped upon us. I mean, and I think David states this in verse 5 when he says that we're made a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now, I, I want you to follow me into the weeds just a little bit here. We're going to dig deep in the text in verse 5. Um, uh, and I think it's important to do that here. If you look at the, you've probably got a footnote in your Bible on verse 5 where it says heavenly beings. And the footnote, or maybe your translation, says God instead of heavenly beings. The, the Hebrew word there is Elohim. So, crown, uh, uh, excuse me, you made him a little lower than Elohim. Now, Elohim is in the Old Testament a couple thousand times. It's not a rare word. It is a very, very common word in the Old Testament. And it's almost always translated God. 
But here it's translated, uh, at least in the ESV, it's translated as heavenly beings. And so the question is why? Why is a word that's almost always translated God here chosen to be heavenly beings? And because David's talking about creation, I I think a, a person's translation of Elohim in this verse flows directly out of their understanding of, of something that's taking place in, in Genesis 1 and 3. So, so Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. The question is, who's God talking to? Let us make man in our image. Who is God talking to there? Or Genesis 3.25, where God says, Man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Who's God talking to? That's a question that scholars debate, let me tell you. Some would say that God's talking to the angels, that he's talking to the heavenly beings in existence at that point when he's creating the physical world. And and if you hold to that understanding of Genesis 1 and 3, then you probably should translate Elohim as heavenly beings in verse 5 here. But others would say that God is talking to himself in Genesis 1 and 3. Not in the sense that he's going crazy, but in, within the Trinity. That this is a conversation taking place between Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity. And if you hold to that understanding of Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, then here in verse 5, you probably translate Elohim as God. You made him a little lower than God. Um, I... Honestly, I'd lean toward the second interpretation. I think it's a conversation within the Trinity in Genesis 1 and 3. Um, But both of those are valid. And, and, And regardless of which understanding you hold, the same basic point is made in Psalm 8. The point is that mankind is below God and yet above the rest of creation. Crowned with glory, crowned with honor, given dominion over the works of God's hands. That's the point that David is making here. God cares for us, not just because he created us, but because we have his image upon us and, and we're charged with a job to carry out. And that job is to rule over his creation, to rule over his kingdom and, and because our success is tied to his success in that area, we can be sure that the enemy mentioned in verse 2 will not defeat us. And in fact, the enemy has already been defeated. I, I would encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 with me. I said earlier there are often multiple levels to the Psalms. And we're going to see that in Hebrews 2. Now, now David spoke in Psalm 8 about Son of Man being a little lower than the heavenly beings, given dominion over all things. But listen to how the writer of Hebrews shines a light on another level to David's words. So Hebrews 2, verse 5, it says this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, It's been testified somewhere, and we know that somewhere is Psalm 8, because we just read it. It's been testified, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? 
You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the writer of Hebrews is seeing that other level to Psalm 8. He's saying it's not just that mankind was made a little lower than, than the angels, a little lower than God. He's talking about Jesus himself becoming human, right? humbling himself as he did that, and then ultimately being crowned with glory and honor through his suffering through his sacrifice upon the cross. So, you know, if, if it were left up to us in our own efforts as fallen humans, we'd fail in our charge to hold dominion over creation. And we've been failing since Genesis chapter 3. That's the whole reason Jesus needed to come. It's because we've been failing. But Jesus, the divine Son of Man, came to defeat the enemy of mankind and, and, and restore dominion to us. So the victory was won through his suffering death. And I think what Jesus shows us is that rightly wielded dominion is displayed through self-sacrifice. When David's talking in Psalm 8 about ruling over creation and that dominion, when we're doing that correctly, it, it, it's through self-sacrifice. And we could probably make a whole nother sermon off of just that idea there, that point, but... But going back to the question David asked, you know, God, why are you mindful of me? Why, why do you care about me? It's because he has given us the role of ruling over creation in a way that sings his praises and proclaims his majesty. Remember that? That's the point of Psalm 8. How majestic is your name in all the earth. We're charged with ruling over creation in a way that does that. And God's going to do what is necessary so that we can carry that out, even us fallen humans. That's why he sent his son to free us from our sin. And he continues to provide us what we need so that we can exercise dominion over creation in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way. But the practical question might be, yeah, that sounds great. You know, that, that's what we're called to do. I get it. But what does God honoring, God glorifying dominion over creation look like in Eureka, Illinois, in the 21st century in my life? You know, what, what does that look like? And I can't tell you exactly because we all live unique lives. We all have specific contexts. So I can't tell you every little detail, but I think there's basics that we can highlight about what that looks like in our lives. I've already said that, that rightly wielded dominion is displayed through self-sacrifice. So because the creator and ultimate ruler over creation is the one who sacrificed himself, we exercise dominion given to us. We wear the crown placed on our head by him by serving in the way that he would have done and in the way that he did. That's how we ought to wield our dominion, like he did through serving. And so we can ask ourselves, 
are, are we living each day for our own glory and honor, or are we living each day for God's glory and honor? Are, are we seeking to point people toward God, or are we distracting them away from God? Do we, do we seek to point out the majesty of God's name, or are we seeking to draw attention to ourselves? Dominion can be used for both of those things. Uh, but we know through the example of Jesus that rightly wielded dominion is pointing everything back to God, leading people, leading creation to praise his majestic name, as we've been talking about. So when it comes to, to our jobs and when it comes to our vocations, we can, we can ask, am I doing something that ultimately works to praise God's majestic name in the earth? Does my job help other people or other parts of creation realize their full potential to praise God's majestic name? Or does my job, does my vocation ultimately lead people away from that? Now, now that, is, that is a vast oversimplification, okay? I, I, I do recognize that. Jobs and companies can be and, and are very complex, more complex than what I just said there. But I, but I still think it's an important question for us to ask. You know, regardless of how well my job does or doesn't pay, is it work that helps humans, helps creation realize its full potential to bring glory and honor to God? Or, or maybe another way to ask that is, how can I perform my job so that I'm doing that? That's maybe the more applicable question. How can I perform my job so that I'm exercising that dominion over creation, to bring creation to worship God. And it's not just jobs and vocations. I mean, we can ask those questions when it comes to hobbies or relationships or, or any kind of extracurriculars in our lives. I mean, anything, we ought to be asking that kind of question. Uh, exercising our God-given dominion is not about strength and power being used coercively to get us what we want. It can't be. It, it has to be about rightly recognizing the majestic kingship of God, living in his kingdom, and, and leading others to do that as well. That's at the heart of, of Psalm 8, looking at creation, recognizing who God is as creator, recognizing that we've been given dominion within this creation, and seeking to then participate in, lead others to participate in that worship of God. I think that's the reason it starts and it ends with how majestic is your name in all the earth. Sets that precedent and tells why God's name is majestic, tells us what we've been called to, and what we're called to is to lead, our, lead ourselves, lead others into, again, praising God's majestic name. Now, there, there's psalms of praise all over the book of Psalms, and, and we're going to look at one more next week that's more focused on God's character than it is on God's work. But, but Psalm 8 is just a wonderful reflection on the majesty of God and, and our place within his creation. We, we praise God because of his transcendence as the creator, and we praise God because of his imminence. He's with us. He's giving us dominion in his name. And so, I, I, again, I would encourage us in response to Psalm 8 to take time in the coming days to look at the work of God's fingers and to praise him. 
in response and to consider the dominion that he's given to us, that we've been given, and then to ask God for wisdom and how we might live that out in increasingly God-glorifying, God-honoring ways. I mean, David said it loud and clear, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's proclaim it. Let's, let's proclaim that majesty to all creation in all that we say and do. Would you stand with me? Let's come before God. Give him praise and ask him to guide us in that. Heavenly Father, we, we recognize that, that you are creator. We can read about it in your word. We can step out and look at the world around us and see the work of your hands. And we give you praise for that. We thank you for the love that that conveys to us. We thank you for the power that that displays to us. God, and we praise you for it. And we also look at us, who's the son of man, that you would even be mindful of him. God, but we know that you've created us with purpose, that you love us, and that you are guiding us in that purpose, equipping us to carry it out. Would you help us to do that? God, we want to live out this dominion that you've given to us. We want to bring you honor and glory as we do that. So guide us individually, guide us as families, guide us as a church family as we think about that. God, I, I believe that the, the more we carry that out here, the more it will look like heaven on this earth. The more your kingdom will come, your will be done as as you taught us to pray. We give you praise, God. We recognize your majestic name in all the earth as we sing more songs of praise to you now. We want you to be honored. We want you to be glorified. Would you help us to do that? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.